Thank you all for your reading. So today is a good day. Today is an exciting day because we get to start the book of Philippians. And I'm really excited about this. Um, I've been working on it for a few weeks now uh, in my private study. And um, I haven't like done this. This is called exegetical preaching where you kind of look chapter by chapter. You, you read the commentaries, you get into the Greek, and you're like, what is actually there? I've been doing a lot of topical sermons because I kind of just have one spot to, to preach and then I don't have one for a couple weeks. So the idea for this time when I'm replacing Matt is to dig into one book and stick with it and really stay disciplined. And the discipline honestly has been a little bit rough for me sometimes. I'm like, I want to preach this. I want to preach this. Uh, just yesterday I had a conversation with Angeska that, well, maybe I should do this or that. And she said, well, you know, you said you were doing Philippians, so let's just stick with it, you know. Um, and, uh, and I'm really glad I did because I just really got back into it and just saw so much richness and so much... There's something to be said for discipline, although, you know, it's not joyful in the time. It brings good results. So um, you guys have a colorful little thing here on your seats. Um, which says questions for reflection on one side. On the other side has Philippians 1, 12 to 30. And this is next week's passage. So the idea here is that you guys can take this out. I know a lot of you are, you know, reading through the Bible in a year or you're doing, yeah, you got the right one. Um, but in addition to whatever you're doing for devotions, you can read this. You can read it through a few times. You can read it through one time. There's just some questions. There's no exam next week. I'm not even promising this is what the sermon's going to be on. But these are just questions to kind of get you thinking about the text and get you kind of engaged with it so that next week when we examine the text, uh, we're all going to kind of be on the same page and we're going to be ready for it and we're going to be engaged. Um, the thing that I really found neat about looking at uh, Philippians, I talked last week about how all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, and, you know, the, the prophets are great, and reading the stories about David and reading the Old Testament, that's all great. But the situation is very, very different from us. It's, it's a very different world. Whereas Paul was writing to a church in our age, in the church age. And Paul was somebody that was educated in something not unlike a Western education. And so when you're reading Paul, it's like, there is a lot less work necessary to kind of bring it to our context. It's almost like Paul is writing a letter to us, to our church. He's not, and we need to remember, okay, no, it isn't written straight to us. There is that extra step of we're not the Philippians, and we're going to talk about that. Um, but it's just, I appreciate that God has chosen to communicate in various ways through various means so that there's different things that connect with us, and Paul is somebody that really connects very easily to our context. So let's talk just briefly about the history of uh, Philippians. So Paul, as most of you know, uh, was the first missionary of uh, the early church. Um, Jesus died and rose again in AD 33. Either 30 or 33, we don't know. It's one of the two. Um, and Paul got converted in AD 36, so a few years later. And then he spent a long period of time researching, studying it out. He did, he did some preaching, but it was on a small-scale basis uh, until he was called up to Antioch to really start the church there with Barnabas. And then from Antioch, Antioch is a little bit north of Jerusalem on, on the Mediterranean Sea. From there, he got sent out on three different uh, missionary journeys, and he went around the Mediterranean basin 
uh, to Cyprus and then up through Greece and, and around. And then he, went, he did that circuit again and again with slight variations. He got in prison. He got sent to Rome. He did a bunch of fun things. Not fun things. He did a bunch of exciting things. His life was very exciting. Uh, not all fun. And you can read about all that in, in Acts. And one interesting little wrinkle here happens in Acts 16, uh, 1 to 4, where, and maybe I will just read that, because um, this is just a side note, but I think it's, it's sufficiently important just to mention it, Acts 16, 1 to 4, that Paul had an idea in his mind where he thought God wanted him to go and God had other plans. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple there. Is this right? This isn't right. I have the wrong verse. All right, I'll, I'll just go from memory. Uh, he was wanting to go to a certain place, um, and the Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. So he wanted to go to a different place, but the Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. And then he had a dream at night where a man from Macedonia said, Come over here and help us. And so he woke up and said, all right, God wants us to go to Macedonia. Um, if you can picture in your mind where, where Palestine is, where Israel is on the Mediterranean, the edge of the Mediterranean, you go up and around, and then there's Greece kind of sticks out. In between the two and north is the Macedonian region. And so he went up there, and the capital city of Macedonia, or, or the, the principal city in that area, was Philippi. So he went to Philippi, um, and he planted a church there. This is also the place where he was jailed. Uh, for preaching out boldly, and this is where the, the, there was the earthquake and the Philippian jailer was converted. Um, Paul is in prison again. He, he got out of prison that time. He continued preaching boldly, and he's in prison now. We don't, we're not exactly sure when. There's some debate when he was in prison. He was in prison a number of times, but he was in prison again. And the Macedonian church, the Philippian church, uh, had sent Paul money because they often did this. They were one of his sending churches that was often contributing to his support so that he was able to go other places to preach. Um, Paul was a tent maker. He was able to make tents and sell them to support himself. Um, but if he could, he would preach full time. And so uh, the Philippians sent him money so that he was freed up to uh, do what he felt called to do. So Paul has a very close relationship with uh, the Philippian church, which is why I wanted to preach it. Honestly, I thought, I don't want to jump into something like Galatians or Corinthians uh, that's, that's full of trouble and controversy. I want to pick kind of an easy book that's, you know, Paul liked Philippians, and the Philippians liked Paul, and it was pretty much a happy, warm, fuzzy letter. So I thought this is a good place to start. Um, so my expectation, everybody, when they, they think of Philippians, they think of joy, because joy is mentioned quite often in Philippians. Paul was having a rough time. He was in prison, but he said, I've learned the secret of being content in whatever situation I'm in, I have joy. And so that's, you know, the, the secret, the, the lesson that a lot of people take out of Philippians. I thought that's a great lesson to have is how can we find joy no matter what our life has for us? It's in general a warm, friendly letter. It's perhaps... The only book that we're, the only epistle where Paul doesn't really have something harsh to say. There, there is some negative things that Paul says, but you almost have to read between the lines to guess what the problem is. Whereas, you know, Galatians starts out, hi, how's it going? I can't believe you abandoned the gospel. You know, that was like his opening salvo. Um, and in the books of the books of first and second Corinthians, there's huge issues he's addressing. Uh, and he's very harsh. But Philippians is very, very gentle, uh, and he's not really addressing major issues. 
Uh, and the book of Philippians, I actually memorized it at one time. Um, just after Bible school, towards the end of Bible school, um, I memorized the whole book and really meditated on it and chewed on it. And it had a huge impact on me. It talks a lot about humility, putting others first, not being selfishly ambitious, which me as a young man, I just wanted to get out there and push my way in front of other people. And, and it really, it spoke to me. And we're going to probably talk about that when we get there. Um, and Philippians 2 especially uh, is really, really powerful. It talks about Jesus' example of, of humbling himself and how we should live that, considering others is more important than ourselves. So I'm excited to get to Philippians 2. But there were some surprises as I got into the structure a little bit more. For one thing, uh, Philippians is a, it's a strange structure. It's, it's a funky sort of way of, of writing the book. Paul is very predictable in, in Romans, in Corinthians, in Ephesians. He has almost exactly half of his book, of his epistle, is doctrine. This is what I want you to believe. And then there's this break, and then he says, and this is how I want you to live. Philippians is not like that. Uh, and then usually, right at the end, he's got a little bit of, say hi to so-and-so, say hi to so-and-so, please send money, the end. Um, in, in Romans, it, you know, I want to be sent on my way by you. So there's this, this little, tiny little, please send money at the end of Romans that you probably didn't know about. Um, but Philippians is kind of marbled throughout. There's personal information that he starts with, or not starts with, um, there's doctrine, and then it, he switches to this is how you should live, and then he gets into some personal information, this is what's happening with me, this is what's happening with um, Epaphroditus, the person that you sent to give me money, um, and then we switch back to here's how, what you should believe, and then we switch to this is how you should live. So it's, it's kind of marble all throughout, and that's part of why I didn't spend the whole sermon, I easily could have, just talking about the context and, and what was behind, and I figured Paul goes as he goes we get to hear more and more about Paul's situation so as a church as we go more and more we're going to hear about the situation so we'll, we'll sit in suspense a little bit of some of the things going on in the background but it's kind of cool because as we'll see Paul uses his personal example and the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus as uh, as role models to illustrate how they should live and what they should believe so it's it's a neat sort of a way to uh, to write a book um, he talks a lot about good and bad examples in ministry. And this is kind of strange because usually you think of like the good guys and the bad guys, right? Like, like the, the good saints that are doing right, the good things, and then the, like the evil, terrible people, like the heretics and the false teachers. But Paul talks a lot in, this, in Philippians about people that are preaching the gospel but are doing it in a bad way. But they're, they're still preaching the gospel, but they're doing it in a bad way. Um, and so this is a little bit of an awkward theme because basically it's pastors that have bad motivations but they're still pastors they're still on our team and it's, so it kind of gets close to home like I gotta ask myself am I doing this am I preaching the right message but with a good with a bad heart um, so we're gonna get there and you know we're gonna discipline ourselves look at these passages even though um, I wouldn't preach a topical sermon on that if I had the choice um, eternal security comes up. That's one of these issues that I have lost so much sleep and so many friends over that I just run away from anytime anybody opens it up. Um, but I can't avoid it, so we're going to talk about it. Um, and we're going, to, uh, we're going to love each other through it. And I don't think there's a... 
I don't think there's issues here. I, I grew up in a Baptist church and then moved over to a Mennonite church, so there, so there were fireworks, but um, I think that we're all, it, it's going to be awesome. We're, we're going to hear God's word from it, and, uh, and it's, it's, we're going to feel God's, God's love and God's, God's assurance of us. Uh, this is a missionary thank you letter, and I, I wasn't thinking about this when I chose it, but I am a missionary and I'm writing thank you letters all the time. So this is like embarrassingly close to home and it feels a little bit weird, um, but I'm learning a lot because it wasn't weird for Paul to write a missionary thank you letter and to say thank you for participating in the gospel. Thank you for being part of my team. Thank you for you know, caring about me and not just caring about me, but being part of what I'm doing. And so I have learned a lot and... Um, I think that we'll learn a lot together on that. So that being said, let's open up to Philippians 1, 1 to 11. And we're going to have a look. Is that really the right time? Okay, that was a long introduction. Um, we're going to have a look at what Paul has to say in Philippians 1, 1 to 11. Now you'll notice that technically you have an 11-point um, sermon outline. So have fun. Um, Something that I noticed in, uh, in examining this, and the commentaries didn't agree with me, so it's possible that I'm just making this up. Um, but it seems to me that uh, Paul organizes his thoughts either intentionally or unintentionally in a chiasm. And I mentioned this last time that I spoke uh, exegetically from a passage, that often the way that Hebrew scriptures are written is not the way we would write it. We write it point one, point two, point three, you're done. Whereas they would write... Point one, point two, well, no, they would do point three, the least important, point two, point one, central point. Then we move back to point two in a different way, point three stated in a different way, and now we're done. So the Psalms are often written like this. And when you understand the structure, you start to, it's not just chaotic and random. You, you understand there's a deep structure in this. And there's often, it's really interesting to see when he comes back to the same points, how he restates them, but in a different way. And so that's, that's an interesting tool for you if, you if you really look deep at some of the Psalms. This was really important for, uh, the reformers discovered this uh, in, the, in the 1600s, 1600s, 1700s, and it just unlocked a whole bunch of the scriptures because they were trying to read it as point one, point two, point three, and then we're not sure where Paul's going. He's going all crazy here. But it's because he's going in a chiasm. He's going three, two, one, and then two, three. So anyways, I'm not sure there's explicitly a chiasm here, but his thoughts are moving in that sort of a pattern. And so I, I find it very helpful to look at that. So Paul starts it off. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So this is a fairly typical, hi, how's it going, introduction to a letter. Except there's a few things that are different here that we can just take notice of. First of all, Paul does not call himself an apostle. So Paul wrote 13 epistles, and in nine out of his 13 epistles, he calls himself an apostle, or he says, Paul, an apostle, Paul calls him an apostle. His title, as far as he was concerned, and with the Corinthian church, he goes to great lengths to defend that he is an apostle. He's just like the other apostles. Nobody else can say he's a better apostle. He is absolutely an apostle, so listen to him. But for the Philippian church, he doesn't call himself an apostle. So he just leaves that little bit off. It's kind of like, you know, like a doctor, you know, signs his letter, you know, Sam, 
instead of Dr. Smith, you know, he just says, ends his email dash Sam, you know, instead of, he could add his MD, MA, doctorate, whatever, but he just leaves that off. So that's it's just interesting to note that. And then he calls them saints. Um, in almost all of his letters, he starts the letter by calling them, the recipients saints. And the sermon that I preached last Sunday at, at uh, Sawyerville Church, uh, it's on my podcast. You can look at that. If you don't know how to access my podcast, you can ask me later. Um, but we talked about how it's so important to understand that we are saints. It's not as though there's, you know, the, the priests are up here and us normal people are down here, the laity. There is no distinction. We are all priests. We are all saints. And Paul here calls his recipients saints. You are the holy ones. Um, and that's who he is speaking to. And so he's lifting them up, saying, you are saints. And the third thing to mention here is that he specifically mentions the overseers and deacons. So these are the two roles that are talked about in 1 Timothy 3. If anyone uh, desires to have the office of overseer, it's a worthy thing that he desires, 1 Timothy 3, and then talks about, later about overseers and deacons. Uh, as far as I know, these were the only two roles. There were apostles and then there were overseers and deacons. Uh, limit of how many apostles there were, but you, you know, every church has their overseers and deacons. And he specifically mentions their titles. So again, this is interesting. And the fact that he drops his title and mentions theirs and emphasizes that they're saints, we see something happening here that's going to be significant later. So we could just zoom over it, but it's just worth mentioning how Paul is lifting them up and subtly lowering himself down. So the first blank here, we have a fill-in-the-blanks thing here. The first blank that we're seeing here is humility. Humility and Christian character. That Paul is just modeling something here. That you guys are saints. And I want to mention especially the overseers and deacons and honor them as saints. Um, the next thing... Moving on to the next verse. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a lot packed in this little verse that he is going to unpack later on. Grace is this Greek word charis, which is where you get names like kara or um, what else? It means grace, unmerited favor. God is being kind to them, even though they don't deserve it. And this kindness, goodness, favor, blessing comes from God. And peace. Irene is the word peace, from which we get the name Irene, peaceful. And this is from the older uh, Greek word, aero, which means join together. And when I was doing my word study and I was looking at that, um, it just really hit me, this concept of peace being joined together that comes from God. And Romans 5, I want to just flip over to Romans 5 for a second. To, Romans 5, 7 says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God 
through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies of God. We were sinners. And yet grace came from God and gave us peace, a unity with God and man. This is the gospel in two words. Well, three. Grace and peace from God. It's probably more than three. I'm not going to get technical. <laughs> it's the gospel in a nutshell, okay, guys? That there is grace and there is peace that comes from God. So the second blank is the gospel. There's grace and peace coming from God. The third thing that we're seeing in the same verse is Christology. Christology is a big theological word that just means studying Christ. And we're going to look a lot at, uh, at Jesus, who Jesus is, who Christ is, especially in Philippians 2. It's one of the most important passages. It always has been for understanding who Jesus Christ is. And we see that grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's two super important things here. First of all, he calls Jesus Lord. Now, the Greek word here is kurios. And for the Greeks... Caesar is Lord. For the Greeks, Caesar is Lord. And there was a quasi-religious sort of overtone to that where you did burn incense to Caesar, and when the Caesar died, he became a god. So he's kind of Lord, but also kind of a little bit like a god. And so to call Jesus Lord for the Greek-speaking citizens of Rome, that was a big deal. That was a little bit dicey. Like you wouldn't really want to say that too loud on your Facebook because you might get in trouble. Um, and so, in fact, this is one of the things that led to the persecution of Christians in the first couple centuries was that they were uh, treasonous. They, they had a different Lord. Only Caesar is Lord, and that's how we keep the empire together is we all worship the same Caesar. Um, and so, but he says Jesus is Lord. And secondly, for Jews... Because, as we've mentioned before, Jews did not like to say the word God in their language, either Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't know because they stopped saying it. We don't know how to pronounce it anymore. And so they would find other ways to say, you know, they still had to kind of know who you're talking about. So they would find other things to say instead of God. So one of the things that they would say would be theos, which was Greek for God, a generic term for God. But more often they would use the word Lord, kurios, to refer to God. And so when a Jew heard somebody say, Jesus is Lord, Huzos, Kyrios, what they would hear is, Jesus is God. Which is why one of the earliest creedal statements, which is found in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, don't have the reference here. What I mean by creed is, this is something that, that was memorized, that the church would say over and over, and that Paul said, nobody can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. This is a way of telling who is from God, who is not from God. If you can affirm, Jesus is Lord, you're on our team. You're, you're preaching the right message. One of the first messages of Christianity is Jesus is Lord, which means he replaces Caesar. He's more important to us. He's more central. He's more uniting to us than Caesar is. And secondly, Jesus is God. And this has got everybody mad. You know, the Jews aren't happy with this, and the Greeks aren't happy with this. But Jesus is tearing through the culture, the fabric of society, and saying, I am God, and I am boss. And this is what Paul affirms here. And furthermore, the grace and peace from God, our Father, also come from the Lord Jesus Christ. That this grace, this unmerited favor, comes through Jesus Christ. And this peace comes through Jesus Christ. 
So the gospel here is tied inseparably to who Jesus is as Lord, as God. So Jesus is God, is the second blank. Then we move on to what I was hoping I would find in Philippians, which is the warm fuzzies. Uh, we find love. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So Paul thanks God. First of all, Paul is praying continually for the Philippians. How many of you know somebody is praying for you continually? Is there anybody here that could say, I know there's somebody praying for me continually? What a blessing that is. You know, my grandmother, the, grand, the great-grandmother of my children, has told me often, I pray for you guys every day. You know, and, and I get the idea that it's like she's spending like a good half hour on us, like maybe more. And she wants to know what's going on so she can spend time specifically praying for us. And that is a tremendous blessing. Like, I, I appreciate that. And Paul says to the Philippian church that he prays for them all the time. He's always praying for them, continually. And furthermore, he says, and this is encouraging, every time I pray for you, I'm excited, I'm happy. Now, how many of you pray for somebody pretty often, but when you pray for them, it's not always happy thoughts, right? Like you're concerned, you're worried about them, you're wishing they would come back to the faith, you're, you're concerned about the life direction they're taking. But Paul doesn't says, say that. He says, I'm offering joy in my every prayer for you all. Every time he prays for them, he's got joy in his heart. So this is, just imagine being the Philippian church and hearing this. Like, this is an A on your report card, right? Like, this is our apostle, the apostle Paul, as he prays for us, has got nothing but joy in his heart. That, that means something. That speaks something. So Paul is communicating love through prayer. Now let's have a look. We'll get to the heart of what Paul is saying here in his opening. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul is praying for them continually. He's got joy. He's got love. Why? Because of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And we find out from the end of his book, Paul gets to his reason for writing. In, um, in, verse, in Philippians 4.15, he says, You also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So this is a church that has been sending Paul money. And no other churches, at least during a specific time of Paul's life, there was no other church that was helping Paul. But the Macedonian church, the Philippian church, was continually sending him money to such an extent that they actually became famous throughout Paul's letters. Paul embarrassed the Corinthian church by saying, these Macedonians here, which is not a wealthy church, are outgiving you. You guys should be put to shame. You guys should be giving more. And specifically in that ask, he was asking for, to send money to Jerusalem to alleviate the, the famine. But the Macedonian generosity, which was a generosity from, from relatively poor people, 
uh, became legendary within within Paul's uh, accounts. He, he, he boasted of them to other people because they are participating in his gospel. Look, the bottom line is if Paul didn't get money, he wouldn't be able to preach. He's got to eat. He's got to sleep. He, travel costs money. It was, you know, it was easy to travel, relatively speaking, but you still got to buy a ticket on a boat or however it worked, uh, rent a donkey. You know, you, you got to get from point A to point B and it's going to cost money. And the Philippian church was giving him money so that he could do what, so he could preach, so that more people could hear the gospel, so they could tell more people, so they could tell more people. This was a really big deal. Uh, these dollars were being, being put to good use, and Paul was incredibly grateful for that. They were participating in the gospel from the first day until now. So they were participating in the gospel, is the fifth blank. The sixth Oh, chapter 6, and we're on point 6. Look at that. It's almost like I planned it. Uh, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So here, right away, we're into eternal security. This isn't what I want to do, but it, the scripture is boss, not me. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, of course. Like, why would you say that? Uh, is there supposed to be some sort of a doubt that, you're, that somebody might not make it? Um, what, is, what is Paul saying that he's confident of this very thing? That, um, and then it gets even more awkward when he says in um, Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what's the deal with this working out your salvation? I thought God did all the work, and we just receive it. And what's the deal with this fear and trembling? So obviously there's at least four positions that people shake down on. There's Arminianism. There's Calvinism, there's dispensationalism or Baptist or eternal security. And then there's something called middle knowledge, which I more or less agree with. Uh, we're not going to go there. Uh, but I want to say two things that I think are helpful. First of all, there's justification and there's sanctification. Justification is like the marriage or the adoption, whichever metaphor you prefer. You get into the family. And that's free. You don't earn that. You don't pay for that. That is all grace. That is a gift. And it's one time for all. You don't like, it's not an installment plan. It's not a rent-to-own sort of an agreement. You're married, you're married. You're a son, you're a daughter. You're in the family. Okay, so it's a one-time deal. It's justification. Then there's sanctification, which is progressively becoming more and more like Christ. Because Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. Well, that's not happening right now. But hopefully I'm closer to that today than I was yesterday. And so that's the, the process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Confusingly, Paul uses the same word salvation for both things sometimes, justify, justification and sanctification. But I think that's helpful to, to distinguish these two things. To say that you're working on your, your sanctification, that doesn't mean that you're insecure. It's just like saying we're working on our marriage. doesn't mean that your marriage is on the rocks or that you're you're close to divorcing. It just means you're improving it, right? And this deal with fear and trembling, you can be afraid, you, you can tremble even though you're perfectly safe. In fact, this is often the place of greatest delight. 
This is standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and having your knees wobbly and thinking, wow, like this is amazing. This is going to Niagara Falls and going down to the bottom where you, you, you have to yell or, or text to your partner uh, because they can't hear you, right? It's too loud. It's too awesome. And you're looking at it and thinking, if I was five feet that way, I would so be dead. But I'm not. I'm, I'm over here. I'm safe. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we need to approach our faith with a sense of, I'm secure. But God is holy. And this causes me to tremble. And I want to say honestly, folks, we have tended to emphasize our security so much. And I don't, don't for a minute want to detract from that. Okay, I don't, honestly. Uh, you might have gotten that from... Anyways, I don't want to detract from that. We are secure. We are in the family. We are a son or a daughter of God. We are secure. But we need to tremble. We need to tremble. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, the beginning of wisdom. And even in a good marriage, you tremble sometimes as you think about what could happen if, you know, and that keeps you in a good marriage. So, um, that being said, Paul says, um, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you can be confident in a positive outcome without fearing a negative outcome. You can be confident in a positive outcome without fearing a negative outcome. Just as an older couple can come alongside a younger couple and say, I think you guys are going to make it. You're going to make a great team. You're going to do awesome. Without there being some sort of a, oh, like you, there was ever a question that we weren't going to make it? No, it's just a nice thing to say. You guys are going to make it. You're, gonna, you're awesome. And so this is what Paul is saying to them to encourage them that um, he is confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That they're going to keep growing in their faith. They're going to keep developing. They're going to keep getting more and more progressively holy, more and more Christ-like. So salvation and security. Then verse 7, we're starting to move our way back through the chiasm. So we're back to point 5 on our, on our chart. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Because, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So why is Paul so sure of their salvation? It's because they're partakers of grace with him. They're his co-workers. They're on a mission. They're sacrificing for the gospel. And this, for him, becomes attached to, I know you're going to make it. I know God is perfecting you. I know that you guys are charging on towards the finish line because I know you're, you're part of my team and I see your work and I see your partnership. You all are partakers of grace with me. Um, in, uh, keep running ahead of my notes here. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul encourages Timothy to watch his teaching because in teaching carefully, he will save not only his hearers, but also himself. And I believe the salvation talked about there is the sanctification. That in preaching the gospel to others and teaching them, you're also going to push yourself along, which is how it works, right? If you want to learn guitar, teach it. If you want to learn piano really well, you teach it. If you want to learn scriptures, you teach them. And I can tell you I've learned more 
studying this in the last couple days, last 24 hours if we're honest, um, then, uh, then I did reading it for, for many, many, all the different times that I've read it through. So he is confident in their continuing salvation because of their partnership in the gospel. And this brings him again back to love. For God is my witness, verse 8, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has love displayed through, through prayer again. That he, he cares for them. He loves them. And that is again tied to how they're part of his team, how they're caring for him, how they're praying for him, how they're sending him support. How, and and he's, he knows that they're doing well because of what he sees. And this I pray, no, let me pause for a second to say this, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Not only does Paul care for these people, but he says, Christ Jesus loves you, and he loves you so much that as I'm praying for you and I'm in communion with the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit is loving you through me. So I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And the last song that we read, the last song that we sang, ended with this line, Praise the one redeeming glory. Praise the one who makes us one. And I highly doubt that such an eclectic group of people would be together in a room if it wasn't for the love of Christ. Right? It's the love of Christ, the affection of Christ Jesus for each one of us that is able to draw us into such a close family and be able to love one another. And then Paul moves into a prayer. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So point three was Christ's love through Paul. And point two, he moves to talk more about the gospel. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So the gospel, this is a Greek word, euangelion, which means a good message. Sometimes the, the Roman army would conquer another people, and then they would send out uh, a letter to everybody to say, hey, we've conquered the Gauls, they're subdued, they'll never conquer us again. Um, knock on wood, right? Um, but they would send out this proclamation, and it would be called a euangelion, a, a good news. And the gospel is a message. It is good news. But let's focus on the fact that it's a message. It can be contained in words on a page. It can be an idea that is preached, that is, that is communicated through preaching, through speaking. And it is, a, it is an idea that can be communicated wrongly. Okay? It is an idea that can be corrupted, that can be thwarted, that can, be, that can go off the rails in some way. And this is going to be important for Paul later on in his, a little bit in this book, but he talks a lot about it in Galatians. But he wants them to know that this message that they've received, it's important to get the details right. It's important to get the details right. Because to get the details wrong is to miss potentially the gospel or else to miss out on some of the richness of the gospel.
And I find the progression really interesting, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So this is kind of how I see it. As you grow up, as you open your heart to love people, that gives you wisdom that you didn't have as a 16-year-old that thought you had all the answers to all the world, right? You, you start to understand how the world works and, part, and you understand that through caring for people and from having your heart broken and learning wisdom in that way. So through love, you move into the world and you get real knowledge and all discernment. Discernment is this idea of being able to discern between what is good and better and best, you know, and what is bad. Sorting through things is the idea of the Greek word discernment. So through your love, you're able to learn what is true knowledge and then discern things so that you may approve the things that are excellent. And his choice of word excellent here, it's interesting because the enemy of excellence is not like um, terrible. The, ex the, the, the opposite of excellent is not terrible. It's pretty good, right? We get distracted from doing what is best from what is almost as good, right? We get distracted from doing, becoming what we could be because there's so many other things that are urgent and important and they take our time. And we need to have the ability to sort through those things and say, what is really excellent here? What is the really the one thing that is the most important that I really need to dedicate my time to? And his prayer for them is that their love would push them to true knowledge so that they can have discernment to figure out what is actually the most important thing for me to put my time and energy into here. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Sincere. No more hypocrisy. No more external religion. No more dressing up nice for church and then going home and yelling at your kids on the way home. No more... Um, following all the rules and looking down your nose at somebody else who isn't following the rules the way you are. Sincerity. Honestly becoming somebody better through the work of Jesus Christ in you. Through sanctification. Through working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sincerity and blamelessness. Being holy. Living up to what they've been called to in the first verse holiness, the holy ones, so that you may be blameless. This is what he wants for them. Not somebody who's able to hide the guilt, not somebody who is living in constant fear of what might be shared because there's dark secrets in the past. But even if there are dark secrets, those are hidden. Those are covered over by the blood of Jesus and they're no longer a part of who you are because you are blameless in Christ Jesus having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. So this fruit of righteousness, I think it has to connect with what Paul talks about elsewhere, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, he says in Ephesians, I think, is love, joy, peace, patience, godliness, um, help me out, uh, self-control. Um, those are uh, the highlights that I often think about with kids, right? There's more than that, but I always think of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, peace, kindness, long-suffering. Okay, sit down, be calm. Um, but this is what God wants to fill our hearts with. Not just external religion, outside looking in, but actually becoming a better person, a different person on the inside.
And so that concludes uh, our ex exegetical look at our passage. Let's flip it over and I want to briefly talk about how should this change my life right now. Because I do want to be I do want to be practical and I do want this to make a difference for us. I think some things we can learn from what we've looked at today is pray for people. And in our prayers, don't just talk about the negative stuff, but give thanks for them. Give thanks for people. And tell people that you are praying for them. Encourage people by saying, look, I'm praying for you, and I gave thanks for you because you're a real blessing to me. Let people know what you're praying for them. I'm praying that your, your life expands, that, that good things happen for you, that blessings are upon you. Participate in the gospel. These people supported missionaries. They were on mission with missionaries. Um, because there's people that go and preach, as Paul did, and there's people that make that possible. So become a participant in the gospel, whatever that looks like to you. And become a partaker of grace. Care for them. Pray for them. Go to them if that's possible. Become part of the team, as the Philippian church was to Paul. And seek out what is excellent. Discern what is excellent from what is just pretty good and live according to that. So that being said, let's close our time in prayer, our sermon time in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this book that you wrote, um, that you inspired uh, Paul to write to the Philippians. We thank you for all the things we can learn from it. And I pray, Lord, that you would, um, you would be with our hearts to, um, to become as you are, to become holy from the inside out, and that we can learn to love and that our internal space, instead of being filled with anxiety and worry and things to do, can be filled with deep thoughts about prayer and care for others, thanksgiving requests, and we can make these known to you. In Jesus, Christ, in Jesus name, I pray. Amen.